Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. And Linkshus, the place where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Jinder. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. We are talking to Yu Jinder, currently Vice President for Asia Pacific for App Annie. This is actually obtained through an introduction through a common friend who's always on the show. His name is Samir Singh. And Jinder is kindly to give us an interview. You're currently in China, right? Actually, I just moved from China to Singapore. Back to Singapore? Yes, yes. Jinder, tell me something. How did you get started in technology? So I think it was many years back, back in secondary school when uh, back then, World Wide Web just started. You know, we had the modem, so you dial up to internet. And I was I was like kind kind of in a boys school, so there was not so much to do after school, but just to meddle with computers. So that that's that's when I started get going uh, get going with technology. I played with HTML, and then I, I learned what I was using Microsoft Publisher back then. And then later, I started to do some coding myself. And then uh, later, when I went to junior college and university, my just interest continued, and it took me to study more of computer science. And after that, that's just. But that's just it. But actually, I think most of my interest in tech and what I'm doing these days, I would say, was learned outside of the textbooks. So you eventually <coughs> go into a career of technology. You work in both startup environments and also corporate environments. Would you want to tell us a little bit about that? Frankly, I've been working in startups most of the time. And the only time that I've worked in corporate departments was when I think I had a stint consulting for Singtel. So because I'm pretty much more of a, like I said, a small company or startup or independent person. So, And working for Singtel gave me a little bit of a, of a taste of what it's like to work for a big company or at least a big company from Singapore, from Asia. So I'm, I'm happy to have that taste and also understand how companies like that work from the inside. But right now, I'm very happy working in more internet companies and startups. So you were in China for a while. Describe the experience when you were in China. Sure. I've been in China Yes, I moved over there eight years ago when it was initially in Guangzhou. So it started because when I was in my second startup in Singapore, I was back in the university then, and then it was it was called Tech Sailor. It was co-founded with two Chinese students who had been studying in Singapore Singapore for a while. So during our second year, we started to get some bigger projects, bigger bigger business deals, and and then because. My, my two co-founders, they had connections in, in South China, which allowed us to get a free office space there. So we decided to just open an office there and hire more, more engineers, more developers, because it was cheap back then. I can remember back then, our guy with the lowest salary in Singapore was actually even more expensive than our most expensive guy in Guangzhou. So that was very affordable for us. By the time we graduated, we already had 30 full-time working staff, so that then it, it was pretty much still on, on, on track already. So I'm moved together with the company to Guangzhou. And then once I moved there, I stayed a couple of weeks and I thought, okay, this is it's a big city. It's, it's, it's huge. It's a little messy. It's a little chaotic. It's not the same structure. It's not so structured as Singapore, but it was fun. It was unorganized, but it was fun and it was cheap and you get more out of life. So I decided to just stay on there. So I stayed and after a while, actually, I left I left Sailor and I left it to in the hands of my co-founders. So I was in Guangzhou and then I was there for a year. So and after I left Sailor and I was in Guangzhou, that was a point when I started to learn a lot of things because you, you're on your own, you have nothing to rely on and then you're just yourself. So the first thing I learned was how to survive. 
So, but of course, it was easier because as Singaporean and also you have some income, some savings. And then Guangzhou then was quite affordable for by our standards. So, but first, of course, you have to learn to survive for longer term. So, as a Singaporean in Guangzhou, you have and you learn to survive by relying on how you're unique. What are your unique advantages, comparative advantages, and so on? So, as a Singaporean in Guangzhou, I I, I look local. I look like a Chinese person, but I can speak uh, slightly better English. I was able to get work. Consulting work, helping foreign businesses get to China, and also helping Chinese Chinese businesses get out of China. So this was something natural that I picked up. I, I built kind of a niche doing this, and I was operating as an independent consultant as well. So I had a lot of freedom to work with all kinds of companies, all kinds of people, and learned a lot of stuff. After one year of doing all kinds of things and and experiencing all kinds of things. And also having a lot of fun meeting a lot of people in Guangzhou. I got picked up by one of my ex-Texella clients to do business development for a mobile social gaming company called Scorlu. So and then I moved to Beijing as well. So Guangzhou was already a big city. Beijing was even bigger city. Previously, I was very passionate in technology, passionate in internet, and then so this was a move from internet to mobile internet, mobile internet, mobile games as well. So I was also very passionate. So. At first, I didn't know anyone. I I I was nobody in the industry. But because I was also very passionate about、uh, the whole industry, all the games, I tried out a lot of games. I, I met a lot of people over one year, and I, whoever I met, they could be big companies, small companies. I spoke to everyone with a lot of passion, with, and also just gave a lot of insights and so on. And within one year, I built a lot of good connections,、uh, met a lot of people, and also I started to get invitations to speak at events. From being a beginner foreigner in China, you can also do very well just by being sincere and being really just passionate about the industry. And actually, mobile internet is is a very very hot thing in China even today. So there are millions, tens of millions of very passionate people,、uh, young people about the internet. Yeah, there's about six、yeah. hundred to seven hundred million mobile subscribers. I mean, to date, based on the data known.、So So, how did you eventually get involved with AppAnny? I see that you started off from being a consultant, and now you are a vice president. How did that happen? A few things. You have to have a lot of knowledge,、uh, and the knowledge was built up because actually,、uh, one year after I was at Scorloop, I, I I quit. I left because I met a lot of people. I built a lot of connections. A lot of people asked me to help them. So over two years, I did kind of a crash course all around the mobile industry because I did consulting work for N networks, for mobile education, for mobile games, for carriers. I even designed a game myself, and also some in,、uh, mobile investments VCs for two years. So this gave me a, a incredible crash course. Learn everything, almost everything. Uh, about mobile in the top in a very short span of time. The downside is that、uh, income is not so stable. So it, I also happened to chance on actually during these two years, I, I kind of also learned about myself. I want to work a huge startup, a startup with crazy ideas that's going to make it really big. Because I was had this、uh, reputation and experience as a consultant, I was able to do consulting work while shopping around for that great idea. And I would say that I landed at Appany, and it, it was a lot of it was incredible luck. Because you think about it, a Singaporean, a international Chinese person in China, the best fit for you would be、uh, would be a, China, a startup started in China doing international and with a really really great idea and in mobile. So this was it. So this was incredible luck. I think back at that time, Appany was probably the the only one that fit this fit this description. But actually, today there are quite a number of international startups started from China. I joined because. I got. I started as a consultant. I was referred by one of the co-founders of the company. And actually, before joining the company as a consultant, I was already using Appany, because Appany was a free、uh, market research tool that、uh, anyone in the industry, if they cared about the competitors, if they wanted to do some basic research, they would be able to use Appany for free. So I was already using it a lot back then. Before I joined, I, I thought Appany was this just this analytics company. 
Because if you're in mobile ads, mobile games, and so on, you might think analytics is really useful, a lot of numbers, but it's boring. It's not sexy. It's not exciting at all. Then I met the the boss, uh, the the founder, and then we went through some stuff. We talked a little, and then he showed me data. It was not a website. It was not visualization. It was not charts and reports and so on. It was just Excel sheet. But once I saw it, I I, I thought it was incredible. Because the, back then it was maybe it was five and a half years ago. They had the downloads and revenues of every app in the world. On Excel sheet, so that was incredible because if you're in the industry, you meet a lot of people every day. You see a lot of products, but you don't know the numbers behind them. So once I saw that, I was like, "How, how do you get this?" So that was something that was incredible. So back then, five and a half years ago, they had already worked out some amazing data science to estimate and extrapolate every single app in the world to a very amazing accuracy. So AppAnie as a company has raised ninety-four million in five rounds from nine investors. Uh, Sorry, mm-hmm. that one have to correct you. Oh, uh, we, we started from Beijing, so that's Beijing? that's why I, really? I said it was incredible. That's yes. interesting. So how did it became uh, started from from San Francisco? Uh, because the the the, the 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 founder was in Beijing. The product was started in Beijing, so uh-huh. it's just actually when the product was started, the, the guys who started it didn't really have full idea of how to monetize this. They just thought it was a convenient tool for the for for developers to use, and they were using it themselves. Mm-hmm. And then the CEO thought of this business model and got funding, and, and that's how we started. After that, because we, we serve international audiences, and the CEO is French, he, he knows that we could do much more globally than just in China. So we so, so we, we moved our headquarters to the US. But uh, we still have over we still have close to two hundred people in China, where our admin team, our engineering team, finance team, that they're all there. Yeah. So back to a little bit uh, how I started and how I progressed the planning. So I started as a consultant. It was slightly after. The Series A, they were working on plans for Series B. So I helped with the deck. I helped with some product plans, roadmaps, and then and it was done. And then they said, okay, so this Series B thing will take a few months to come in. The money will take a few months to come in. We have a uh, Excel sheet product. It's, it's very valuable. It's just Excel sheet, but we're starting to get some traction in the U.S., in the West. But we also think there could be some business in Asia. So why don't you try it? So I, I tried it. And then within six months, I brought in over $1 million U.S. in revenue. And then that showed that there was huge potential in Asia. So we set up a team to do this. And then I became a director of this development in Asia for Appani. And then within a year, we, we grew, actually not that much. I hired a head of China, I hired a head of Japan, and that was it. But just with these two really, really great people, grew the revenues by a lot. We signed up all the biggest customers in these regions, and, and then it was timed. And then we also got Series B in. We had a series of global expansions, and well, Europe team, US team, and also APAC team. So we, I got promoted, and we grew a huge team. Mm. So today, we have more than 50 people in sales and marketing in APAC. I, I'm proud to say that, yeah, I think we're one of the global companies who are quite substantial in APAC. We are very deeply rooted. We have all the biggest customers, not just in the US, but also APAC. Because if you compare a lot of other global companies, they have, they are huge in the West, they're huge in the West. Biggest customers in the US, some customers in, in Europe, and then they have a satellite office in Singapore, and then they have a reseller in Japan, reseller or consultant in China, but they don't go deep. So we are huge in the West, and also CJK, we are fully penetrated. That's really good. And I was just taking a look at your data that actually you're also funded by Sequoia Capital, IDG Capital Partners, and a couple of other yes. big investor firms. So this is clearly a Asia story, but because of the way how the data is presented to me. So now I thought it's a US company. But tell yes. me something more about AppAnnie. Give me an introduction of exactly what AppAnnie does and how does it help 
mobile app owners from app market data analysis to app store optimization? Sure. So iPanning today, we're the global market leader for mobile apps, market data, and analytics. To put it simply, we provide the downloads, revenues, audience demographics, engagement data, and more on every app, every country, every single day. So this is meaning that we give you data, we provide data on not just your own apps, but every app in the world. So this helps you understand competitors, understand market size, understand countries, so to help with your decisions company-wide. It could be strategic decisions, competitive decisions, marketing, uh, business development, investment, product decisions. All these could be powered with numbers instead of just intuition or guessing. I would say that some people call us a market research company. We, we don't really totally think we're a market research company. We're more of, more of a technology company providing market research. Because unlike some other traditional market research play, uh, companies, what we do is we collect all our data using technology. So let's say if you want data or Indian, house, Indian housewives, mobile app consumption, we don't have to send a team out there to, to India to do uh, survey panels and so on. We have every single part of the world, all the data in our service every, every hour. So it's all collected by technology. If we have one customer, 100 customers, it's just code running it. We don't have to hire more people to do more stuff. I mean, we, we do have a, a customer success teams and great people who serve you, but in terms of collecting data and presenting it, it's all code. Well, I was looking at your data. I think as of yesterday, you already have 825,000 apps that's using your analytics and you have probably 90% of the top 100 publishers and you're tracking already something like 83 billion downloads and about 25 billion revenues tracked. So you actually have a very big data set of what mobile apps is doing and how user usage of yes. these apps are actually doing. So just before right. we get on a little bit deeper into the conversation, how many countries currently AppAnny does operate in Asia Pacific? So we operate in all the major APAC countries. So as in our services are accessible in every country in APAC, but the main countries that we do business in would be Firstly, North Asia, because that's where we started, and actually those are the biggest markets in Asia. Mm. And then after that would be India, Southeast Asia, and Australia, New Zealand. When as a user, what do I typically do with App Annie? So typically, I've seen your products. There's the market data part, sure. and there's the app analytics platform. So how does it benefit me as a app, mobile app user? <coughs> uh, let me split that answer into firstly yeah. the app analytics part. The app analytics part, we actually help you get a lot more analysis about your own apps. There, there are a lot of anal mobile analytics providers out there. But one, one thing that's different from about us is that we do this without an SDK. So you don't need to integrate any code, bundle any code, compile any code into your app. So all you do is to connect your accounts to us, your iTunes or Google Play accounts to us, and then we will instantly be able to sync your data and put it all into one dashboard. If you have many apps on iOS and Google Play, we can put it on one dashboard. So it's cross-platform. We also support Amazon and Microsoft as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because on the iOS and Google Play app stores, they, I think the official backend, they do provide you a number of stats, number of graphs and charts and so on. And they also provide a lot more raw data. So we actually take a lot of the raw data and put it into even more meaningful charts and dashboards. Are there any sort of interesting case studies in Asia where companies have used AppAnny and found value? So, okay, I think the much bigger value comes from our premium product, mm -hmm. which is the market data part. 
mm. where we provide the numbers behind every app, every publisher, every category, every country. We cannot cite specific case studies because most of our data is used in very internal strategy, strategic decisions. But some of the things that I could mention, okay, for instance, some companies that we, we worked with in, in China, they, they were always looking at the biggest countries worldwide. It would be, okay, firstly, they would look at uh, Chinese market, they look at Korea, look at Japan, look at US and so on. And then we showed them and, okay, so the, one of the customers, they bought from us and then they looked at our data and they saw that actually the, the Taiwan and Hong Kong regions were actually also very huge in size. So actually if you, okay, if you add up, if you compare top 10 countries in the world by revenue and if you add up Taiwan and if Taiwan and Hong Kong plus Hong Kong were a country, that they would be number four in the world for revenue. Uh, and that's even, so, so uh, that's, that's after Japan, US and China. So number four in the world is actually Taiwan and Hong Kong. This is actually quite uh, impressive and they didn't know this. So they didn't use to allocate budget to do marketing in Taiwan and Hong Kong. So this is, so they found out about this and then they started to get good ROI from here. And actually, if you look at Taiwan, Hong Kong, of course, most of the revenue is coming from games. And actually Malaysia is actually part of the same group, if you, if you call it, because uh, this is the traditional Chinese games group. If you look at Malaysia, most of the revenue is also coming from games and also from a lot of traditional Chinese games rather than Western games. What about in-app purchases? Are you able to even track the in-app purchases? Yes. Wow. Naturally, we track in-app purchases because if you look at top apps in the world, most of them are making money from in-app purchases. The paid apps are uh, generate very little value, not so much revenue, insignificant. So in Asia, is it better to have in-app purchases versus paid apps? Whether you're doing utilities, maybe doing productivity, or even doing gaming apps. Or in um, each category, they're slightly different. Yeah, I mean, it really depends on how big you are as a company. I mean, if you're just one or two individuals, I have seen some companies that are quite successful doing paid apps. And they, maybe they might just be a group of five people doing very good, very polished app. And then it could be profitable for them. I mean, it's just different ways of marketing it. So, I mean, if you're... A, app with in-app purchase, most likely you're free to download and then people like the experience, people are drawn into it and then people pay. People pay either they are they really like your stuff and really need to use it or they pay on impulse. There are many, many dynamics. If you're a paid app, you need great reviews, you need a great title, you need a great icon, you need great screenshots, great write-up because that's all people get to see to decide on. So so it's uh, different ways of marketing. And also mm, okay. in China, there are some, and also frankly, people, I would say people could also consider releasing both free and paid versions of an app because in generally in Asia, especially on Google Play, the paid downloads chart is quite easy to scale. You, you might, if you get, let's say you get, you have 200 friends, you ask all, all of them to download it, download the paid version on one over three days it's likely you could get to the top of the charts or near the top of the charts already. So it's a uh, form of like a kind of optimizing the visi uh, visibility. The visibility. So if you want to get to the top of the free chart, you need a lot of downloads, which might require a lot of ad spend. If you want to get to the top of the crossing chart, you need a lot. To, you need to amass a lot of revenue either from paid ad purchase or in-app purchase. If you want to get to the top of the paid downloads chart, because very few people download paid apps anyway. You might get to the top of it by getting by spending the least. Getting on the top of paid chart is the same amount of visibility compared to the top of the free chart or the grossing chart. Ah, okay. So AppAnny produces a market index, which basically provides a barometer of micro trends that are emerging in the app ecosystem across stores, countries, and categories. So I was looking at that report basically. So how does that index calculated? from a generic perspective. At Penny, we have our proprietary big data algorithm, big data science that generates estimates on every single app in the world. 
So every single app in the world, we are able to tell you the estimates of downloads, revenues, demographics, usage, engagement, and so on. So for the particular index you're looking at, it's either based on ranking of downloads or revenues. So we just rank them based on the, the revenues and downloads that we've generated. And so in that report, you were saying that China has actually surpassed US in <coughs> iOS downloads. So sure. how did that happen and what are the categories that are of interest for that? For that particular report, how, how it's calculated, just to elaborate a little bit, I, I'm, I think that was probably Q1. So yes. we added up the downloads of every app in China over the entire Q1, then that's China download size. And then we did the same thing for US, that's US Q1 download size. And so China is bigger than US. How it happened, I cannot, I mean, I don't know the, I could suggest a few reasons. Mm. So firstly, China market size is bigger than the US in terms of number of people, number of smartphone owners, and so on. And secondly, uh, Chinese people are very brand conscious, so they might not earn that much wage, but they're willing to spend more. And also, if you look at, uh, if you read some reports, these people are no longer as the, not, not, actually are more well-to-do. The middle class in China is actually quite on the same par as the, the middle class in the U.S. I, I read this somewhere, I forgot where. And then also because maybe a lot of the phones in China, a lot of iPhone owners in China might not be owning the, the newest iPhone 6. I, I asked some friend at Apple previously when they released the iPhone 5C because the 5C, when they released it in a lot of other countries, it was meant to be the entry-level device. In China, it wasn't so because if you look at it, it was maybe one to two hundred US cheaper than the iPhone five, so Chinese people wouldn't really pay one hundred or two hundred US less to get a phone that is, in terms of brand image, inferior. So that five C was not the entry level. It was rather when they launched five iPhone five, iPhone four S was sold at very cheap price. So the older model is usually the entry level, and I, I do suspect that there are a lot of people still using older iPhone models in China. And also recently and then, the launch of 6 and 6 Plus, the there is a heavy surge of even iOS users. I think the Chinese yes. users are preferring the iPhone 6 Plus because they, that, that tablet is actually their smartphone and personal computer. Yes, kind of. Yeah, I mean, in China, this goes back to the story about mobile. So mobile, I think, is not just, it's nothing like internet or TV because internet and TV, you think about how many people in, in the world have access to this in China, India. They might have access, but they will go to the internet cafe or go to school to use it. But if you look at mobile, everyone in the world has mobile phone. And these days, mobile phones could be $100 uh, and Android $100 and the, the Android, uh, the owner of the $100 Android phone could still enjoy the same apps as a uh, owner of a iPhone 6 Plus and also pretty much the same quality as well. So I think mobile firstly is this enabler. To get back to the question, I also wanted to know the category. So is Chinese <coughs> ascendance actually driven by what kind of downloads? Is it just games or is it just other forms of apps? China's rise is actually due to a lot of things. Games is just one part of it and actually uh, a lot. Uh, the bigger part uh, of downloads and consumption is outside of games. It would be commerce, would be social, would be shopping and all, all the live services. And this is actually, you see this more in China than I think the US because I lived in China for a long time. I have also uh, visited the US at least two times every year and then I come back to Singapore. I, I think the mobile ecosystem is much more advanced than China. I could pay for my utilities bills using Alipay. Uh, I could pay for. I could go to the restaurant and pay my bill using mobile. I could top up my card, uh, top up my phone bill as well. I could do a lot of things. But I, I remember one when I remember the first week when I came back to Singapore. I found a lot of 
inconvenience because I was not able to do this using mobile payment. Because th- there are two, three huge companies in China, they call it BAT, mm. Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. Tencent. Yep. So at least for Tencent and Alibaba, they have uh, Alipay and WeChat, which is the central focus, uh, central center point of all the mobile technologies and mobile enablers uh, around, around the country. So, because, like, for, for instance, Groupon. Groupon kind of stuff would, would work to a certain extent in Southeast Asia. But in China, this kind of porn websites, coupon providers are very big because of location-based stuff and because mobile payment is so ubiquitous. And it's not just geeks or tech people using it. People on the street are using it. People in third-tier cities are using it. That's how you see when a technology is huge. When people in third-tier cities are using WeChat, they're using Alipay. Because it's so frictionless, it's so easy to use. Uh, I actually bought coupons uh, at least twice a week. And sometimes you just go to a restaurant and you eat and then you open your phone and then you see that, oh, you get actually a better offer here. Then you just pay instantly with the coupon. You don't see this in the US. You don't see this in Singapore. And I, I think my, my guess is that you will see this developing faster in China, in India, and, and in, in areas in Southeast Asia where there's huge population and they really never fully got onto the internet. But now with mobile internet, everybody's getting on and there's a huge population. In the report, there's also citing of a very interesting app called P2, P-I-T-U, which is a photo app, very similar to filters that's actually driving the high downloads. Yeah. So can you comment a little bit about that? So there are quite a number of these in China, these photo editing tools. And this one is from Tencent. I think it's pretty popular because it's distributed by Tencent and also partly via uh, WeChat because WeChat is the one that the one app that everybody uses a few times every single day. So the, I, I would say, yeah, just because of Tencent influence and Tencent's distribution power, it's, it's among the top. And I also tried it. It's a pretty good app. But I, as a male, I, I don't really use it that much. <laughs> but I, I would say that these picture editing, photo editing tools have existed in China since the very, very early days. The earliest one was called, one called Meitu Xiu Xiu. So that was in a period where it was just PC internet. So it was like a Photoshop that every single girl could, could, could use very easily. So this the lady would not even have, uh, maybe would not have advanced education, would not really fully know how to use operate a computer, but they would know how to use this to whiten their face. To, to make their skin look brighter, to, to make their skin uh, face looks look look thinner and so on. Uh, this was back since the very, very early days. So I also read one interesting article on Quora. Some guy asked the question why Chinese girls don't put makeup and there was one funny answer. I, I don't I, I don't know how much truth that, uh, there is to it. They, they said that Korean girls go for cosmetic uh, go for surgery and then Japanese girls are very great at cosmetics and Chinese girls are very great at photoshopping. Then what about mobile gaming? My last question is pertaining to the report on App Annie produced about on mobile gaming. It's focused on Southeast Asia and actually it has shown that actually now the combined mobile game downloads from Thailand, Indonesia and Philippines have actually exceeded South Korea which is actually known to be heavily used for mobile gaming. I think after that will be Japan. What are the kind yeah. of emerging trends that's coming in terms of monetization and what kind of apps will be very hot in the Southeast Asia region? Okay, so firstly, I think this is not surprising because like I said, mobile is an enabler. Android phones are very, very cheap and they can penetrate these markets in Southeast Asia very well. And if you think about it, Korea has a population of 50 million and they are very, very smartphone mature already. Almost everyone has a smartphone. But in Asia, in Southeast Asia, I think we have a few hundred million population. So it's just a, just a matter of time before uh, Southeast Asia could also surpass Korea on revenue. In terms of how we've grown, uh, in some, some, some interesting trends in Southeast Asia. Firstly, I, we see that, okay, firstly, the obvious thing is that Google Play downloads are far bigger than iOS. 
And the surprising thing is that if you look at overall overall revenue, as in all games and non-games revenue, iOS is still bigger than Google Play in, in Southeast Asia. But if you look at just games revenue, people think that Android gamers, Android owners don't actually pay, but actually that's not true. Because in the recent few months, we've seen that Google Play revenue in Southeast Asia has actually already exceeded iOS by just a little bit. And I because of the far bigger user base, user base of Android users, Google Play users in, in Southeast Asia, I think there's much more potential. And this potential will be unlocked when there is more mobile carrier building support in the region. Why? Because if you look at China, people who pay for games in China are not your people in Beijing, Shanghai, and, and Guangzhou, Shenzhen, all the tier one cities. Actually, it's a lot of people who are blue-collar stu students in the second and third tier cities because they, they don't have a very interesting nightlife or a kind of very colorful life where they do all kinds of stuff, go to the movies, clubs, and so on. Every day they go home, they watch PVTV, they watch uh, online TV and shows, and they play games. That's entertainment to them. And they, they will happily spend 30 RMB per month or, or even 100 RMB per month because that's, that's what they need to do to kill time. And if you think about the demographics in Southeast Asia, the mass consumers, it's the same demographic. So... And what is stopping them from consuming is not that they're willing, unwilling to pay for games. They don't have cash or they don't believe in paying for games. It's just that they don't have a credit card. So we've seen this a lot in many countries when once Google Play works with carriers to enable mobile billing, the, their revenue would shoot up after a few months. So uh, in Southeast Asia, I think there's a challenge when working with carriers. It takes more time to work and to test up a solution to make sure it works and then to execute it. So Singapore already has three carriers on board. That's great. Then there's a huge I think Thailand also has AIS on board when Indonesia and Vietnam and so on also hop on Caribbean. I think it will be tremendous for the region. So I presume that you definitely be excited about mobile in this region because there's going to be a lot of growth and particular Asia is actually the biggest driver for mobile apps in the world. Yeah, in, in because the world. Asia has the most population That's and right. Asians play a lot of games and Asians love to chat <laughs> online. <laughs> Not okay. face to face. Mm. Okay, my last question: Where do my audience find you? Yeah, so you can definitely find us on our website uh, www. and you can also find me on LinkedIn. Uh, just search for my name, and also I'm also on Twitter, but I've not used it for a while. Uh, my handle is just Junda, and I'm also on WeChat, Line, Kakao, all the major Asian plat platforms. Is, it, is that with the same I, uh, ID, Junda? Uh, not, not really. So <laughs> yeah, on WeChat, I'm. Yujinda, Y-U-J-U-N-D-E-Q-Q. And on Kakao, I'm Yujinda KK. Online, I'm Yujinda. <laughs> wow. Okay. So uh, you can find me at bilongcw or at bernaleong.com or subscribe to us at Analyze Asia. Our Twitter handle is A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. Or you can find us in Stitcher, SoundCloud, or in the iTunes store, please leave a rating, one star to five star. We always welcome feedback. And Jinder, many thanks for coming to the show and sharing your insights you, about mobile in the region. Thank you.